0: And hear the word of the Lord from Genesis six. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took them, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, "My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for for he is flesh." His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word that through your word you speak to us, your children. I pray that you would speak to us through this word by the power of your spirit. You would apply these truths to our hearts. You'd encourage us. You would strengthen us. And you would send us into the world as people transformed by the great truths of your gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, you know, if you walk into many different church nurseries or kids' classrooms, you know, one scene that you, you often find painted and depicted on the walls is the scene of, you know, Noah and the ark and the flood. and. Um, you know, one church I was at used to have a scene painted on the wall, you know, with Noah was standing with the animals and there was this draft that had, you know, hearts for, for spots and uh, the lion's mane was a rainbow and everyone's happy and they're all joyful. Woohoo. Yay. You know, floods. Awesome. You know, what they don't paint is uh, people drowning in a flood, right? They don't, they don't paint bodies left behind after the flood waters have, uh, you know, receded. They, they don't paint the wickedness of humanity, its thirst for flesh. I think it's interesting, even for me, when I go back and I read passages that I know well, like Genesis six. It can be surprising, can it? It's surprising how uh, the, the words that it, that are said. I think this is surprising to us because for many, the story of Noah and the Ark has been tamed. Like we like the idea of cute animals on a boat. We sing about them going, you know, two by two. You know, I, I remember growing up. I even played a video game. I'm based on this on my regular Nintendo where you, you played Noah and you had to gather the animals from the trees and get them in the boat before the waters came up and you drowned. And so this is, what we, this is what we do with these stories. We take this little part of it and we focus on it. One thing we don't like to think about is, you know, the reason why they had to go on a boat to begin with. Because the idea of God as this judge uh, who punishes wickedness in this way is uncomfortable for us. It feels mean, it feels wild, and, you know, it's interesting how uncomfortable we are with justice because actually all humans have this built-in craving for justice. You know, even, uh, even the, the most progressive atheist walking around the streets of the Northwest believes in justice. They believe in certain rights and wrongs, and we get angry when about perceived injustices. And, you know, we all have some sort of standard. That, that we get angry when we feel like someone is being wronged and, and that we feel like justice needs to be had. So we, we feel comfortable that we can be angry about perceived wrongs in this world. But for some reason, we, we get offended when God acts as the judge, when he judges offenses in this world, when he's angry about evil in the world. Why? Why do we get angry at God? Why are we so uncomfortable with God acting like he might be God? Well, I think ultimately, I think it's because we trust ourselves and our own ability to judge more than we trust God and, and, and we don't want anyone else to have that kind of power other than ourselves because to let, to let someone else judge is to give someone else power. And it's scary because you know, many evils have been done in this world through bad judges, through judges who have been unjust. So we're afraid to give that power away because you know, we wonder, can we actually do better? And this is where a text like Genesis 6, I think, is so important for us and, and we need it because it exposes our inability to actually be judges and shows us that God as the judge is, is, is what we need because he's the only one that's actually capable of judging rightly. He is the holy one who judges not compulsively, but out of his love for his creation. And so as we consider this God who is a judge this morning, I think there's going to be three things we're going to consider. First, the The total depravity of man. This is kind of like the reason why we we are not fit to be judges. Uh, The second thing we find is the perfect holiness of God, which makes Him the only capable of uh, uh, the only one capable to judge. And I think finally, we're going to find the surprise of grace. Right, that the judgment and grace are not at odds with each other, as we often uh, try to suppose. So first, uh, the total depravity of man. Corrupts the entire world. Let's look with me back here at, at verse 1-3. through It says this. You know, When man began to multiply in the face of the earth, uh, in, in the face of the land, and, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man, were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. And so this chapter begins in a little bit strange, if we honest. If the sons of God taking whoever they are, taking daughters of men, whoever they are. And God's response is this, my spirit's not going to abide in you forever. He's essentially saying, listen, if you want to live according to the flesh, fine, I'm going to take my spirit from you because you're perverting it. And he says, you're going to have 120 years to walk until I'm I'm going to destroy everything. Seems like a strange interaction. Uh, What's happening here? Why is God so bothered by these marriages that seem to be happening? Well, this is where we step into one of those biblical debates of the ages, one of the most uh, you know, divided debates I've read personally um, about these this views of who are these sons of God, who are these sons of men, what is happening. And you know, throughout history, uh, there, there's, there's two primary, I think, views um, that are both fine, that, that get to what's happening here. One of the views sees this in the line of what we just talked about last week, where you had the line of Seth and the line of Cain, and it says... Uh, the sons of God is the line of Seth, those who walked with, you know, those are the people who walked with God, and the sons of man are from the line of Cain, and they're the wicked ones, and so what's happening here is you get these lines that are intermarrying, and, and, uh, and the line of Seth is being polluted and corrupted by the line of Cain. I think one, one problem with this is that we get no other indication in the Bible that the sons of God refers to humans, uh, especially in the Old Testament, or particularly to this, this line. And so I think that there's some problems with that interpretation, although it's fine and it's you know, widely in our tradition. I think that's what people uh, believe. The other view, this is where I, I lean, uh, suggests that the son of, sons of God um, is actually fallen angels uh, who have possessed humans and, and had babies with, with women, which sounds like a crazy thing. But in, in the Old Testament, uh, sons of God is actually a term that's used for angels. So it actually fits more in biblical you know, imagery of, of what's happening. And they've come and they've, they've possessed a man and they're having babies with other women because of their, their lust. And there's some other passages actually in the New Testament that allude to this. And Peter and Jude, there's just kind of bizarre passage about these angels that got thrown into this prison and I think that actually helps make sense of this text. But, you know, regardless of which side of that argument you fall on, I think both of, both of those interp- interpretations carry the same force, which is this. That there was unrestrained lust that produced sexual perversions. That humanity had get, so given itself over to the desires of the flesh that God's spirit could no longer dwell in them. And it says that, you know, whatever they saw... And like they took for themselves, this, without distinction, this is the, the lust of the flesh, that everything I see with my eyes, all the flesh I see, if I want it, I can, I can take it. Just like Eve saw that the, the forbidden fruit was good for herself, and she took and ate. So the sons of God uh, took for themselves whatever they desired, and they're, they're giving themselves over to the lust of the flesh. And, and we find the fruit of this is sin is spreading like an infectious disease, corrupting every corner of creation, it's, it's the definition of total depravity, which is to say creation has fallen into a state that it cannot redeem itself from on its own. And in response to this, God says, Listen, uh, because you've acted this way, in 120 years from now, I'm going to remove my spirit from you. So he kind of gives him this 120 years to, to maybe change course. And, to, and what is his spirit? His spirit is the breath of. Life. It's what he breathed life into humanity. And he said he's going to remove it from their lungs if they don't change their ways. He's, he's going to leave them in their flesh, so to speak. Because without his spirit, they die. And so in, in 120 years, he's saying, I'm going to wipe you out. Uh, the flood didn't happen right after this. You know, we read it and it feels like it's right away. But there's a 120-year period that they had to repent. Much like Jonah going into Nineveh. When God pronounces his judgment to a people the appropriate response, and what he wants from them is actually always repentance and turning. Um, and what happens? Do they, do they heed that warning? Are, are, did, are they like Nineveh uh, and, and them heeding the warning with Jonah? Well, no, that's not what we find here. We find seemingly that they ignore God and they, just, uh, they, they bear sons and daughters who continue to spread their sin. From generation to generation, there's a perversion that's passed uh, from line to line and you, you get their offspring. And this we get to some other weird stuff in this passage. Who are the Nephilim? I cannot solve that debate. Likely it's some race of, of giants um, that are the result of some of this uh, intermarrying. And, uh, uh, and, and, you, and then you have these other offspring which are called mighty men. These are violent warriors, sexual aggressors. And it says that they were men of renown. It's not the good kind of renown. These are not the people you want to hold up and esteem. But this is how the prey of the world had become. That they esteemed the worst of themselves. They were famed. This is a world that that delights in evil. Uh, You see them being fruitful, multiplying here. But it isn't beauty. It's, It's not goodness that's being multiplied. It's profound perversions. Multiplying evil instead of good. To the point that we see these words in verse five. He says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What's interesting is it's using the, the proper name of God, that Lord, all capital, is Yahweh. So he's saying Yahweh saw. So this is the personal name of God. He was there. He was near. He saw, well, once God saw his creation and said, this is good, and he saw humanity, he said, this is very good. Now God looks on his creation, he sees it, and what does he say? He says, it's it's wickedness. So much so that every intention of the thoughts of the heart of man was only evil continually. This is the emphasis. Every intention, only evil continually. The depravity is total. Total. And, you know, one of the most fascinating things about this discovery, about where humanity is at this moment, is, is, it, is that, you know, God is not uh, judging their acts of wickedness. Of course, he is judging that, and you find that later. But what does he call wicked here? Their actions, their, their killing, their murderous, lustful ways? No, he, he says it's their thoughts that he calls evil. Jesus says, you know, Jesus himself tells us in the Gospels, it's what, it's from what's inside you, from your heart, that you are defiled. So it comes out of your heart that defiles you. And this is what we see here. As God looked over creation, he sees the inner hearts of humanity. He's, he's Yahweh. He's the God who draws near. And he said it was only evil continually. The only the only meditation of the heart was self-centered perversions. The perversion of Cain had spread everywhere. It didn't its seed, the seed of Cain, had seemingly won. Humanity is totally and utterly depraved. Every molecule is in a state of sin, every thought perverted. And if you think about the promise of a seed that that the Lord promised, the, the promise of a seed that would crush the head of a serpent, it seems that that seed is out of reach in this moment. That seed is in jeopardy of happening. This is a scary thing for us to consider. And one of the interesting things is, you know, we would probably all say in this room that what we yearn for is authentic community where you can share the deepest parts of you and be loved. But imagine if you walked around and there was a screen by your head that displayed every thought that you thought throughout the day, every single one, all the weird ones that are probably popping into your mind now that, well, I hope that's not up on their screen. All those, you know, uh, you probably wouldn't have any friends if we could read everything that you thought in your mind, because we all have crazy thoughts that come through there, don't we? Um, and we think that they're secret, and we're thankful that some of them are secret, but this is this beautiful truth here, that God, Yahweh, who's named here, the covenant God, he's the God who draws near to his people in such an intimate way that he actually sees all your thoughts, all of them. Nothing hidden from his sight, which is both scary and comforting, It's scary because we know what happens up there, and it's a little wild at times, but it's comforting, because deep down, we, we want someone to know everything that goes through our heads and still says, I love you. I'm here for you. And it is actually out of this love for humanity, out of, out of this drawing near to humanity, out of his holiness, that, that God couldn't just let this perversion go because he, he can't just let his promises towards his people go. This is a, what's happening here is a direct and I would say demonic attack on his promises to preserve a seed. And if left unchecked, unchecked and undisciplined, there would be no Messiah in, in the future lines because the people would have devoured themselves. And so lest God forsake his promises, he has to act. His, his character compels him. And this is what we find, secondly, is you know, first we get this utter depression of humanity and, and it's fallenness into sin. And secondly, we find the perfect holiness of God that demands justice. The perfect holiness of God that demands justice. And this is what we see here in verses six to seven. It says this, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. What we see here is the grief of God. God is so grieved by the sin of humanity. These are some of the saddest words, actually, I would say, in all of Scripture. So you don't, when you picture God, you don't picture him grieving. But it says he's grieved to his heart, which here is like it's grieved to his innermost core of his being, his grief. This people who he had made to dwell with him, who he had made to share his joy and his glory with, to share himself with, so much so that he actually put part of himself in these people, has taken the gift of his spirit, the gift of his breath of life, and trampled it. So much so that they were taking the life of other people. And it grieves him because holiness is always grieved by wickedness. Holiness is always grieved by wickedness. It is God's perfect holiness that demands him to act in judgment. Because you need a holy God to judge. A holy God is the only one who can judge rightly because he's the only one who has eyes to see rightly. He's the only one that, can, that knows what good is and what evil is. I think often we hear the judgment of God and, and we can easily think, man, this seems like over the top. You know, maybe just chill out a little bit. We, we're worried he's some tyrant who, who delights in it even maybe. But you know, one thing important for you to hear is that God actually does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. Ezekiel 18.23 says this, this is from God's perspective. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God and not rather that they should turn from the, his way and live. This is, this is God's desire even to the wicked. God's desire towards the wicked is that they, they repent. This is, he gives them 120 years to repent. God isn't some short-fused uh, tyrant who's quick to anger, who delights in destruction, but Scripture tells us he's a patient God, a God who delights in redeeming his wayward children. And part of God's holiness, in fact, actually is his reluctance to judge. Part of God's holiness is his patience, slow to anger, abounding in in love. This is actually who he is in his core. He is long-suffering. But just because he's long-suffering doesn't mean he doesn't judge and bring his judgment to bear. Because they resist, they go the way evil, they don't heed his warning. And in their rejection, God must judge their wickedness. Although he is slow and patient, God disciplines the ones he loves. And God loves the world that he has created. He loves the people in it. And every plant of, that he's created, he loves everything. But he must judge wickedness. He judges the ones that he loves, and so he says here that he judges. Says he's gonna blot out the humans that he has made, and the animals, and the birds. We're in Genesis one and two, we find this beautiful right, creation story Where everything is is void and he he gives it form and he fills it. Now we find the beginning of a decreation story where he's wiping the slate clean. And you know, before we question God over our particular discomforts of whether or not this act is just of him, I want to ask a different question. What would happen if God did not act like this? What hope would there be in allowing wickedness to prevail? What goodness is there in allowing demonic creatures to corrupt the line of man? There is none. There is no goodness in God not acting. If God didn't intervene, humanity would have wiped itself out with its murderous ways and perversions. And in this, you find this profound truth and the holiness of God's judgment is actually mercy. So in the holiness of God's judgment actually is His love. A love that we don't fully understand because we aren't him, but it's out of his love. I think the only way that I can put it in a way that I've began to understand it is the love I have for my own children. When you're a child and you're disciplined, you get sad because you think, oh, they don't like me in this moment. And there's probably some truth to that depending on what they've just done in that moment. But we repent of those thoughts and we uh, try to walk in righteousness, even in discipline. (laughs) Uh, all the parents know what I'm talking about. But, you know, but, but at the deepest core, we discipline our children because we love them. It's out of love that we say, we're going we're gonna to cause you pain if you try to run out into the street because that'll kill you. Or it's out of discipline that we, we steer our children towards life. And this is God's work in us. The only way for him to preserve humanity, the only way for God to preserve his promised seed, is to bring judgment. The holiness of God demands it. The love of God demands it because it would be unloving and unholy for him to do nothing. The holiness of God does not let wicked prevail. You know, there is a, an author who I can't commend all his work, but he has some really great work um, in thinking about the violence of God and the gospel. His name is Marosol Wolf, and he, he's, he's an older man. He grew up in Croatia, and he writes often about what he saw in the Balkans and the evil and the genocide that he experienced in his life and how the gospel. And the violence of the gospel is actually the only hope for people uh, that have experienced profound injustices. And one of the books, he tries to put this in a way that North Americans, so we don't see genocide in our day to day living, in a way that we can understand, so we can understand a little bit better the justice of God. He says this, and uh, you know, if someone, he doesn't say it like this, but he's like, if someone from Yakima, Went to the Balkans and, and was giving a talk to a war-torn people who had been ravaged by genocide. And he was, and they were talking. Listen, you just need to channel God's nonviolent love, and you just need to, you know, visualize peace. Um, then the, the gospel would actually hold zero hope for these people, uh, because people, people who had seen their right, their sisters and daughters raped, and villages burned, and brothers beheaded and tortured. He says, if you tell them that God is nonviolent love, then you aren't living in reality. Because do you know what these people need? They need to know that there actually is a judge that is going to come and bear justice against the ones who committed these crimes. They need a God who is violence against evil of the violence, uh, who is violent against the evil of the world, because this is the only true way to peace. This is the only way to, to actually, the only way to forgiveness. You know, in North America and a lot of the comforts that we have, it can be easy to think of God as this judge, as some kind of primitive idea that we've kind of outgrown as a as a people. What Genesis 6 is trying to show us is that God's holiness uh, is such that it demands that he judge the wicked, and this actually is our only hope. Because the, the vileness of sin is awful. And it has to be destroyed and blotted out. And it's it's a mercy of God to bring his judgments. You know, even in your own life, uh, you probably won't experience a genocide, um, but you are going to have people act cruelly to you. People will treat you poorly, and the only way you cannot take vengeance into your own hand and not take that God's role of judge into your own hand and, and violence into your own hand and join uh, Lamech and join in his quest, Untouchable Quince for Vengeance, the only way to avoid that is to trust that God is the great judge who will give account for all wrongs done in this world. Even those wrongs that, that you've experienced that no one else knows about, even those wrongs that are happening in this world that no one in this room, even though we have the, the internet, I don't know why I put that in air quotes, uh, but even though we have the, the internet that you know, we don't know about every evil that's happening in this world, God does. And he will not let those things go unpunished because he notices he is the God who is near. And this is where uh, you know, we find at the end the surprise of Grace. You know, because, you know, as we consider this, we can't help but ask questions. Well, what, what about us? We still struggle with sin. Does this mean we too will be judged for our evil? Aren't we stained by, by, the, the, by the realities of sin? How can he be the God who draws near to us as people when we are perverted by sin? Does this, doesn't this mean we too will be wiped out? And this is where we find the surprise at the end of all of this. Out of his love and holiness, right? He must judge wickedness, but also out of his love and holiness, he preserves. We find judgment is not the end here, but actually grace is. And this is the final thing we're going to consider is the surprise of grace. Look with me back here, verse eight. "After all of this, he's sorry that he's made humanity. He's grieved to his heart. We get verse eight. "But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord." This is a beautiful verse where God is looking at something else now. He's looked at the, the vileness of humanity, but it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The word favor there is a word that means grace. It could easily be translated grace. And at the end of all of this, the evil of humanity, the sorrow of God, the judgment to blot out creation, what's, what's the last thing we expect is what happened in verse eight. But Noah found favor. The, the, the eyes of the Lord were upon him. He found grace. God saw a man and showed favor on him. God had not, at the end of the day, forgotten his promise to preserve a future seed that would crush all evil. And although all humanity, actually Noah included, deserved to be blotted out for their sin, and I know that later it talks about his righteousness. Uh, and it talks, it says that he was blameless and walked with God, but that doesn't mean he was perfect. That's not what those words mean. I think, if anything, what, what we can see here is this pattern of God shows his unmerited grace on people, and that transforms them and makes them into righteous people and gives them faith. I'm going to make David deal with all that for you next week. But at the end of the day, Noah was included in the wickedness of this world. He deserved to be blotted out. And God showed grace, not for any good that Noah had done, but simply because God showed grace. And this is profound truth that the grace of God is always a gift to His children, and He gifts it to us to preserve His promises. He will not let evil win in the face of the greatest evil of the history of humanity. What does God do? He preserves. His discipline leads him to grace, and although His preservation of and through His preservation of Noah, what does He do? He does his work in bringing about the long promised seed, the true son of God, the true righteous one, the true blameless one who comes to destroy wickedness, not by crushing you and I who deserve it, who, who by our sin, right, deserve death, because the wage of sin is death, right, because it violates the spirit of the breath of life, which animates you and I, but Jesus, right, the true righteous one comes not to exercise judgment on you and I, but to bear the weight of judgment of our sin on himself, Instead of us being judged for our wickedness, Jesus is judged for our wickedness. Instead of you and I being blotted out, like we even read about in verse 51, Jesus is blotted out and our sins are blotted out. What makes this possible, right, that a man could accomplish this? Because Jesus isn't just an ordinary man. He is fully God and fully man. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us, the God who draws near to us. The righteous judge in the flesh, the one who will do whatever it takes to rescue his children. And all of what is happening in this flood prefigure the work of Christ. I think it's meant to help us remember two profound truths. One, that you and I are more sinful and wicked than we we probably believe we are. And two, that, that God's grace and love is more fierce for you than you could ever hope for. And I think at the end of the day, this story does a couple things for us. For one, maybe you are here and you're actually not sure that you are a sinner who needs God's grace to have life. What this story is put here to do is to compel you of your inability to save yourself. You are helpless in this endeavor. You need the grace of God, the favor of God. And you need to cling to the one who can deliver you. And that one is Christ. Call on his name and he will preserve you. I think secondly for us, the story makes us a humble people. Who are we to boast in the grace that we have? We are all helpless. We are all the helpless ones whom God helped. None of us are here by our own strength, by our own perfection, by our own righteousness. And this creates a people of humility and compassion for those on the outside to love and forgive and to even pray for our enemies who do evil to us because we trust God to judge uh, and, and you know what? Maybe Christ's sacrifice on the cross was actually for your enemies' sins, too. Something to think about, right? And this is the work of Christ. He is the great judge who is establishing his kingdom on this earth. He is uh, vanquishing the work of darkness, and he invites us into this work as we proclaim his excellencies. You know, as wicked people repent, God's kingdom advances, and his blood continues to speak a better word. May we be a people who trust in the holiness and the judgment of God and a world that actually craves justice. May we point to the one true judge who brings light and life wherever his judgment prevails. Pray with me. Merciful God in heaven, our great high priest, our great judge, we give you thanks for the grace that you've given to us, your people May we understand how undeserving of that grace we are in such a way that we are a humble people who can't help but show grace and love to all who we encounter. That one day, even our enemies, like we were once enemies of you, will come to know you and be a brother and be a sister in Christ. Help us to go out with the light of life in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray, Amen.